Okay, welcome back to the Sunday Show. Shane Coleman with you until noon today. Now, we're uh, joined in the studio by uh, Rona Mahoney of the National uh, Maternity Hospital, Master of the National Maternity Hospital in Holliseed. Rona, thanks indeed for coming in to us this morning. Um, let's start with, I, I read an interview with you recently and you, you said something which I have to say caught my interest. You were quoted as saying that childbirth was increasingly viewed in a consumer context full of expectation that can't be met. Mm. What did you mean by that? Mm. I think, you know, obviously we talk about childbirth and it is physiological or it is a natural event, but there is a tendency to assume that it's all very safe and that nothing can go wrong. And in fact, you know, childbirth is fascinating. You have two people, you know, you have a baby and a mother. They're very complex physiology, inextricably linked. And it is actually fraught with potential complication, you know. And every day in the National Maternity Hospital and every single maternity hospital, you know, interventions are made to ward off complication. And, you know, if you travel to areas of the world where there's no assisted childbirth, so, you know, I've spent time in Sierra Leone, Malawi, um, you know, the mortality and the morbidity rates are enormous. Um, you know, something, thankfully, that we've left behind long, long ago. Um, therefore, you know, I regard obstetrics, while everything generally turns out fine, it's a very high-risk specialty. And that has got to be um, at the centre of how we think about it mm. and how we resource it um, and, indeed, how we manage it. I mean, what are you talking about? I mean, you, you hear these stories about people with these, you know, very outlandish birth plans and that kind of thing. Uh, were you, was it a slight little, uh, not a dig, because I, I don't think that's in your nature mm, to have mm, a dig, mm. but were you referring to that kind of thing? That I think it's just, yeah, that I think it's just introducing the concept to everyone, you know, that childbirth, as I said, while it always goes well, there are risks there and we've really got to guard against them and we can't be complacent mm. or make any assumption about childbirth. And when we go into it, um, I suppose there has to be that readiness and flexibility so that if we do have a complication, yes, we can intervene. But that has to be there in people's minds as well. You know, that sometimes you will have a hemorrhage, you can't predict it. So a lot of our complications are unpredictable, but they happen fast. Okay. Um, you were quite critical as well in that interview of some of the press coverage. Obviously, very mm. high profile cases in, in, the, in mm. the Midlands mm. Hospital in Port Leisure. You were quite critical of the press coverage of uh, obstetric issues in, in recent months. Why that criticism? Mm. Um, you know, obviously the press, it's very important that they write, you know, about the issues that, you know, face us. Um, and But it's just really the level of detail sometimes that you see, kind of personal detail about patients, and particularly in some cases where patients may be still in hospital receiving treatment. Um, I don't think it should be that you can go into an Irish hospital today and expect to find your details, you know, personal, intimate, medical details on front pages of newspapers. I think that's really inappropriate. We can discuss the issues, obviously, and it's very important that we do, and the press play a very good role in terms of highlighting issues that we all face and need to discuss. But I think when it comes down to, you know, because these intimate details can make a patient recognisable in a relatively small society, and I think women are entitled to absolute confidentiality when they come into an Irish hospital. Mm. Now, I know women themselves sometimes will come to the press, and that's a difficult thing, um, but there is a degree of editorial responsibility, I think, that must be taken in order to safeguard against that sort of um, treatment of women in the press, you know. Um, I suppose those cases, and indeed, I suppose the, the Savita Halpinaver case as well, it maybe slightly punctured the the view we had about our, you know, maternity services being, you know, and they are obviously among the best in the world. That hasn't changed, but I suppose it goes back to your point as well earlier on about, you know, not taking uh, these mm. things uh, for granted. I mean, 
it, Ireland is still a good place to have a baby. There's no doubt about that. But there clearly are issues that we need to. Address. I mean, I think you've spoken even the the short, you know, the shortage of of key staff in key areas. No, I couldn't agree more. I mean, absolutely. At the moment, you know, our figures are actually very good. Um, and Ireland would be, if we look at the statistics, I think we can say this is a safe place to have a baby. But, you know, our population is changing and this is something we comment on time and time again. You know, when we look at the demographic of women coming to have babies now, it's very different to what it was 30 years ago. So we have, you know, much older women, we have problems with obesity, we have, as we have older women, we have women who have other medical problems who are now, you know, becoming pregnant. We have much more intervention in terms of higher cesarean section rates, instrumental delivery rates. Um, so we have a whole different different um, cohort of patients coming through now and so that's going to demand a different sort of service. We've got to grow with our patients but in addition I think we have and I suppose in a very painful way in the last few years you know discovered that obstetrics is nowhere to be complacent. It is not a low risk specialty. Um, it's a very skillful specialty for those practicing it um, and it can be you know it's very unpredictable and I said the complications are really severe when they happen and they can be really sudden and that's not to frighten people. Um, when staff are well trained we can manage those but but it is, if I was to pick out one specialty in the country that needs investment and one that we really need to focus on, I would pick out obstetrics. You know, we see all over the country, you know, we don't have enough midwives, we don't have enough doctors. Um, it's like as if we don't invest enough. But why is that? I mean, is it, are we just, are we not paying enough? Are mm. we not willing to, is, is it that we're not willing to spend the money on it? Is that what it is? Yeah, I think we're inheriting a legacy. It's not, you know, this, any current person at the moment, but I think it's just a legacy where in Ireland, you know, if you like, if you go right back um, throughout the decades, I think it's quite interesting. We've never really had women at the top table who are making policy. You know, if you go back to kind of 30s, 40s, 50s and the beginning and the genesis of our health system, um, you know, we really perhaps didn't have that advocacy for women and the understanding, you know, that obstetrics is really such an important specialty in our society because, you know, people tend to think of it as being a woman's thing. You know, it's really fundamental. Everybody is born. Everyone in this country is born at some point, you know, and if there was one place, you know, you want to get right, because if all goes well, you know, you have a child that will grow up and contribute enormously to society in every way. If that goes wrong and you have an adverse outcome, you know, that's catastrophic for the child, for the family and indeed for society. So, I mean, it's a tremendously fundamental and important specialty. Okay. Um, Let's talk about, we mentioned the, the Savita Halapanavar uh, case. I mean, that prompted the Protection in Life and Pregnancy Bill, which I know uh, you you and, mm. and, and others in your field very much welcomed that. But uh, there is still a grey area for, for medics mm. uh, operating uh, in Ireland, uh, medics in your field operating in, in Ireland. Explain what that grey area still is in relation to abortion law in Ireland. Mm. I mean, just to come back, it wasn't how it was ABC versus Ireland really that had started the legislation, and that was a number of cases that were taken to the European Court. Sure, and it was C I, versus Ireland that really prompted the European Court to say to Ireland, in the case of substantial risk to life, you must provide women with a process through which they can determine whether or not they qualify. Because up to then, you had a Supreme Court ruling from 1992, but you had no legislation coming after that. Would the government that. have acted, though, if it wasn't for the, the, yeah, it was the already happening. from that very tragic yeah, case? Yeah, no, it was Would already they? happening. There was already an expert group had been set up, and in fact, they were about to deliver um, their recommendations to government. You have more government. faith in the political system than I have, I have to say. No, no, but th- that's a fact. It was C versus Ireland that mm. prompted the protection of life and pregnancy bill it wasn't Halopanover this was already happening and that's a fact and there was an expert group factually set up and they were about to deliver the recommendations coincidentally around that time Halopanover happened and I suppose the whole country sat up and you know this was a really high profile case Um, and so the protection of life and pregnancy bill 
you know, became, um, I think it would always have attracted a lot of attention, but certainly all of this constellation of things happening um, certainly put it right out there. But that was the genesis of the Protection of Life and Pregnancy Bill. And you see, it's essentially really just legislating for the X case in 1992. And that's all it really set out to do. So it was in the very narrow confine of substantial risk to life. But of course, as the conversation develops then, you know, suddenly you're looking at, well, what does that mean and substantial risk to life, which is still, you know, in world terms, a very restrictive approach to termination of pregnancy. You know, we're up there, I think, with Malta, El Salvador, but it's a very restrictive um, approach to termination of pregnancy. And that might be as the Irish people wanted, but um, it is purely really setting out to legislate on the grounds really of the X case, dealing with substantial risk um, to life. You've still, you've said even allowing for that legislation, it's still, I think you've used the term medical roulette at times. Mm. It, it just give us the kind of scenarios yeah. you're talking about. So I suppose the difficulty you have is, you know, first of all, um, you have to define what is a substantial risk to life. So in Ireland, under the law at the moment, you may terminate a pregnancy um, if there's a substantial risk to life that can only be um, removed by terminating the pregnancy. And that is our law as we stand. Um, so it's still framed in a very criminal context because should you break that law, there's a 14-year custodial sentence for the doctor and the woman um, or whoever clinician assists a woman in, in obtaining a termination. So you still have so this medical decision-making which is framed very much in a criminal context, which is very unusual. There's very other few cases I can think of in medicine, you know what I mean, where you're making a decision and you're wondering, gosh, you know, am I breaking the law here? You know, it's just a highly unusual context. And is that in the back of your mind at times? Um, I mean, I, I, I yeah, know we're I, talking about mm, a, a, a small number of cases, mm, presumably, but... No, I mean, I think absolutely. I mean, I think you, first of all, your first thing in your mind is to make a good clinical decision. I mean, yeah. you're there to make a good clinical decision for women and we're well used to these issues. Um, but nonetheless, you know, so it's very simple, for example, if someone is hemorrhaging, that's very easy. You have these emergencies. Um, Choriamniitis can be difficult because this is where you have an infection um, in the womb, often associated with ruptured membranes. And so you have an ascending infection and the pregnancy itself you know, becomes the infection. And the only way you can treat that really is to empty the womb um, and to use antibiotics. Antibiotics alone won't do it. So you have to make a decision prior to fetal viability. That means interrupting, you know, the pregnancy, obviously, um, with no chance of that baby surviving. But of course, if you don't, the mother will die too and the baby will die too. So you're going to save the mother's life. The problem about something like choriamniitis is that it's a clinical diagnosis. Very often, the beginning of the infection, you're relying on temperature, you're relying on pains, you know, valsmanic discharge, whatever, all the constellation of signs. In terms of microbiology results and absolute confirmation, you may not have that for 48 hours. You're making a decision in good faith um, to save the woman's life. So be- before you can say for absolute certainty that the woman's life is in serious danger, you, you kind of have to make that call, is you that right? You do, really. Well, I mean, in something like choriamniitis, that's it. I mean, yeah. you, you know, and, and that those and decisions have to be made. that's where the grey area is. And this is where the grey area is. Other issues as well would be, you know, where you have other medical disorders, you know, for example, some of the cardiac disorders, um, kidney disorders sometimes, you know, you're there going... Well, what are, you know, you have these conversations, what is the chance of this woman dying in this pregnancy, you know, and you're working it out and you're saying maybe 20%, 30%. So I could say to you, Shane, well, you know, you've got a 20% chance of dying um, and I'm okay with that. And you might say to me, well, well actually, well, I'm, I'm not. not. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, you know, all of the time, I mean, you know, now mostly, you know, these are rare in medicine. It's not like we have these decisions every day. We're well used to making, we have, you know, the different teams and, you know, we're very used to, you know, talking to each other, but it is still... Um, not an ideal scenario. No. And, I, and I think the one that really brought it home for me was last Christmas, you know, where you had that um, really distressing case um, and very tragic case mm. um, of that young woman who 
who was essentially dead, you know, but pregnant and um, was maintained on somatic support. In other words, her body function was being maintained in order to allow this pregnancy to progress with really no chance, you know, yeah. and something that was way outside what we would normally see in medicine, you know. And I found that really, really difficult um, as a doctor, just hearing that story and what it must have meant to that family. And how did we come to that situation in yeah. Ireland yeah. in 2014, you know. Now, I mean, you're a, an obstetrician. You're not mm. a legislator, obviously. No. Um, but, I mean, is there something you would like to see happening? I think that, you know, again, it's the flexibility, and I'm not a legislator and I accept that, but I suppose from a doctor's point of view, what we are saying is, you know, what I am saying is we just want to be able to make these rare and difficult decisions um, in a clinical context where we are not trying to weigh up and balance um, you know, legal aspects that are quite complex, you know what I mean? So, and I think that's very important for women, that there is flexibility, that we can make the right clinical decisions so with not, women and women also. Not framed in a criminal context. Exactly. But women also need to have an input, you know, like when we're having this discussion of risk of death, you know, um, and indeed risk to really adverse effect on health, you know, women need to be part of that conversation and they need to have an opinion that is respected and that is taken in to the whole clinical decision making, you know, because very often if we're deciding on other treatments, you know, you sit down, there isn't always a clear cut answer. It's not always obvious what you have to do, but you sit down and between doctor and patient and we all sit down and we come to the best decision that we mm. can make at that time. But okay. I think it's very important that women also have a voice. Yeah, um, I, I think it's very likely that in the next doll, the issue of the Eighth Amendment will be addressed. We have, I mean, I think it's Labour, the Social Democrats and Sinn Féin have all explicitly said they want to repeal uh, the Eighth Amendment. Do, do you have a, a view on that? Mm. I think the Eighth Amendment poses difficulty because of the concept of equal um, right to life prior to viability of the fetus. So, for example, you know, 16 weeks, a fetus is not viable if you have to deliver the baby. If you've got a major problem with the pregnancy that's threatening a mother's life, it's not about right. It's actually about clinical risk. And so doctors all the time are dealing with issues surrounding clinical risk. It would be great if in health we had the right not to be sick or the right not to have illnesses, but that is really not the case. So if the law is exploring a balance of rights, uh, medicine is exploring all the time a balance of risks. Um, and sometimes those can come into conflict. And I think that's the problem with the Eighth Amendment, particularly prior to fetal viability. Mm. Interestingly, after um, fetal viability, you know, one of the um, interesting things about the Eighth Amendment, the positive things, I suppose, is that we don't have this threshold of viability where we say that we can't resuscitate a baby less than 26 weeks. We're able to make a clinical decision because we are obliged always to try to um, maintain fetal life and do our best. And I think that's absolutely right. And that's how we practice and that's how we should practice, where we always try to guard and protect um, fetal life where mm. we can and once we get to viability we're able to do that because we can offer a fetus you know intensive care um, even from quite early on 23, 24 weeks now and all the time that's been developing and it's been a great success story over the last 30 years in terms of our ability to administer intensive care so absolutely um, always for us our decision making is based on trying to do our best for both lives both the mother and the baby And can those issues that you're talking about can they only be explored, can they only be changed by 
amending by, by removing the Eighth Amendment and I, then either legislating or, or putting something else I mean, that's in really place. up to the legislators, you yeah. know what I mean? I mean, I think doctors can just be clear and that we need flexibility and that prior to fetal viability, it cannot be a balance of right, it must be a balance of risk. And I suppose that's where you have help from your lawyers, legislators and politicians. That's not really my area. You know? Okay. Uh, have, here's one politician who, who's uh, pretty relevant to this, the Minister for Health. I, I was talking to him on the, uh, the Pat Kenny show a few weeks ago. H- have a listen to what he had to say. The current government has decided that we won't make any change to abortion laws and my party has yet to consider its view uh, for the next election. I know, for example, Labour wants to delete it altogether and allow the politicians to decide the abortion law yeah. without reference to Do you to have people. a view? Um, I, 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 my, 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 view that, my view that I'm open to persuasion on but is, is I don't think we should just delete the Eighth Amendment entirely because that would remove all protection. Uh, for the unborn, but perhaps we should modify it to allow uh, for terminations in certain circumstances, uh, like some of the ones uh, that you mentioned, like fatal fetal abnormalities. Do you like actually have that in the wording of the Constitution? Health. That sounds quite unwieldy, doesn't it? it it'd be diff- do we not learn from '83 that's the you know that that doesn't actually work? Um, we've learned from divorce that it did work. Uh, it, the initial plan in divorce, if you remember, referendum one was to take it out altogether. That was voted down. Uh, in the second referendum on divorce, we wrote into the constitution a quite restrictive form of divorce, and that passed very narrowly. Um, I think just deleting the eighth and saying let the let the politicians decide uh, what our law is on abortion would be rejected by the Irish people. I don't think the Irish people would actually trust um, the doll of the day <laughs> to decide the law on on um, uh, on abortion. I think they would want some safeguards uh, for the unborn born in the constitution. So that, that's 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 my thinking on it. But and I think we'll need to have a, a debate about that uh, after the election. Okay, so Leo Racker, uh, interesting. I mean, slightly different from the Labour position, mm, which would mm. be you know uh, mm. have a referendum to delete the Eighth Amendment and then legislate accordingly. He's saying no, would it just uh, modify rather than delete it? Mm. I mean, could the kind of changes you're looking for uh, could that be done in that context? Do you think? I know you're yeah, not a no, constitutional again, it would have expert, to be, obviously. Um, legal advice, but the history when you think of 1983 at the time and the difficulty surrounding the wording of the Eighth mm. Amendment, you know, and you know, if you look back at commentary by Peter Sutherland and a lot of other people, you know, who'd warned and said, "Look, this is really difficult." to put in wording into an amendment that is going to allow all the various, you know, um, scenarios, I suppose, be covered. And that's the difficulty because an amendment has got to, you know, it's quite sort of, in this case, it's sort of ambiguous um, and it's quite open to different interpretation, but Mm. it's having a tremendous impact on law. Um, so I think it's very difficult. You would need legal advice, but there can I can only envisage if there was such difficulty in 1903 over wording, I can't see finding that perfect wording um, any easier. And the fact that it exists in the Constitution, I think, does pose problem um, for legislation because, of course, any legislation cannot be in conflict with the Constitution. Um, so I would think that would not be such an easy thing to do. Um, and there's no doubt that the wording, you know, in medical terms is problematic in terms of, said, a balance of rights yeah. when we're dealing with a balance of risk. And we, when we've seen cases now, you know what I mean, where this has been problematic. So it's going to be complex. Um, and the concern, I suppose, just lastly, we, we, to, to move on after this, but the concern people would have who maybe are, I suppose, if you want to use that term, pro-life, I'm not sure the pro-life and pro pro-choice I think it's maybe more complex than that mm. nowadays but I suppose the concern some people who are pro-life would have is if you start legislating for example for abortion for the, when the health of the mother is at risk is that that opens the door for 
abortion on demand further down the road. Mm-hmm. Do you understand those concerns? Yeah, no, and I think it is very difficult, you know, for people. And I think there is that fear, absolutely. Um, but at the end of the day, when it comes to matter of, you know, serious illness and death, and actually it's very difficult to determine if I'm seriously in well, am I dying? You know, you know, doctors don't have that ability to say, well, OK, you're seriously ill on Monday, but tomorrow you're dying. You know what I mean? And so we are dealing all the time with risk. Um, and I think it's just, it has to be, you know, a fundamental concept that women's health, you know, and life is protected also. And we must be very careful that we don't get into a situation where women are necessarily compromised in terms of serious illness and the risk of dying. And I think that just has to be a fundamental concept and somehow or other, you know, we have got to respect that. Okay. Um, Just to close, let's get back to maternity uh, services. I mean, that announcement in in recent weeks, uh, the National Maternity Hospital is moving to uh, St. Vincent's Hospital. There does seem to be considerable tensions between the the two bodies. I mean, I suppose that's probably inevitable, I suppose, when you get... I mean, are we we looking at... Is it going to be integrated into St. Vincent's? Are you going to be co-located? Do we know the answers to that at this stage? Yeah, I mean, we've been working on this since about 1998. And I have to say, you know, we have a very good relationship with St. Vincent's Hospital and we've, you know, working with them for years and years and years. And in fact, in National Maternity Hospital, about 70% of our clinical appointments are across the two hospitals. So there's a very strong relationship. Um, And for many years, um, Vincent's have been really supportive for us in terms of looking after, you know, our patients who require intensive care treatment. Um, so we are very grateful to St Vincent's on many levels um, for the very good care that they provide to patients. Um, I think this is a really exciting opportunity. I mean, you're talking about, I mean, first of all, is we have the problem of National Maternity Hospital in terms of the building, which is, we all recognise, not fit for purpose. You know, it's a very old building. And as I keep saying, we're dealing with one of the highest risk specialties there is, you know. So again, it's really important. Building, yeah. Basically, yeah. But obstetrics, the practice of obstetrics is very interesting. It's quite different to acute hospitals but we're very much 24-7 and we're very much procedure driven and those procedures must happen fast so within the design of an obstetric building it's all about rapid access you know you've got to be able to get in the door get to the neonatal unit now get to theatre now get to the labour ward now so it's very exciting to look at the design of this hospital um, because it's really designed with the clinical business very much in mind. So when you're building a hospital, you first of all write a brief and the brief describes the work that you do and then that's translated into an architectural design. And I've just been fascinated by the process. It's been mm. quite extraordinary and really exciting. And you're looking at the plans for this hospital now, you kind of go, wow, this is going to make such a difference. This will be a fantastic um, asset for Irish society because you know we deliver one in eight babies we are both a regional in terms of Ireland East the new groups that are developing we have a regional destination we're also a national tertiary referral centre so for, for women and families all over the country this is going to be really something absolutely so, fantastic uh, So is that really the key issue for you because obviously look we in the media we like to focus on the, mm. the personality battles and, I mean there was a quote in the paper recently about was it one of the senior executives in St Vincent saying you know there should be you know one boss only basically mm. it's not practical for a practising clinician to also fulfil the role of CEO and maybe suggesting that the role of master didn't need to exist anymore is, is that a sideshow for yeah. you? It's not going to be about mastership or any person. First of all, I won't be master when we move to the hospital because we have a seven-year... Like, it's like okay. a relay, the mastership, so it's not to do a road of Mahoney. Yeah. Um, the next thing is not about masterships or fixed views or taking fixed opinion. It's about robust governance. And what's really important for all hospitals is that you have robust governance so that your patients are getting the very best care. And it's all about how do you get the very best services to patients And we have to look, I suppose, at how do we in obstetrics, you know, provide a really robust governance 
um, that allows us to deliver the very best services, you know, to patients. And that's going to be um, fundamentally the compass which we use, which is going to determine how we work it out and um, how the governance runs. Equally, St. Vincent's have to have excellent governance, you mm. know, for their patients. You know what I mean? Mm. So it's as simple as that. But no, there is, you know, this thing of some kind of egotistical row about chiefs would be ridiculous. It's about patients and it's about delivering services to patients. And very much at the centre of our mind is how do we best deliver services and we know in Ireland we've learned a lot in the last three years and we have so many reports have come out which have really emphasised the importance of good governance in maternity services and we're paying attention to those um, it's about patients and we really want to do our best we want Irish women you know and families to have the very best obstetric care and gynaecological care because it's really important Okay. Um, when will the first baby be born, do you think, in St. Vincent's Hospital, in the, the new facility? Yeah, I mean, all going well. You know, I think we're probably up to around 2020 going well. This is a big complex project, so yeah, yes, you can have delays, all the rest of it. But I think, you know, you just hope that everyone's going to get behind this, you know what I mean? And that this is going to be seen for what it is, which is an unassailably good project. Um, I think it's really exciting. Um, I think the, you know, the whole idea now of campuses that are going to deliver, you know, lots of different types of care is really exciting in terms of um, what you can achieve for both academic and um, for research, for teaching. I mean, the whole thing is actually very exciting. Um, and um, yeah, so hopefully the vagaries of complex projects allowing yeah. hopefully those first babies, yeah, will be coming through in 2020. Okay, good stuff. Uh, Rona Manley, Master of the National Maternity Hospital, in still in Hollis Street. Thanks for coming <laughs> in to us this morning. You're welcome.